This week, we spend three days on the coast of British Columbia with arguably the world's best wildlife photographer. I always said a perfect image is art, science, and conservation. And you don't even know why you're in love with that moment, but you just got sucked into that world. Paul Nicklin initially pursued a career in science, but found that only photography could fulfill his passion for animals and their habitats. To witness that and want to photograph it versus turning that into a couple data points on a sheet of paper. You know, one didn't feed my soul and the other one did. Now the award-winning photographer uses his art to preserve species and bring awareness to the effects of climate change. Science isn't getting it done, you know, and we need to break down the walls of apathy and that's going to happen through visual storytelling. And puts himself at risk in the process. I mean, if I die doing what I love doing, then, then so be it. We hear firsthand the sacrifices necessary for his life's mission. It still sort of haunts me to this day that I don't have that. I'll never have that. All that's coming up next right here on the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast. So I wanted to start by taking you back to when you were growing up. What did you like doing when you were a kid? All my life I've been in love with nature and being outside and being outdoors. So I was fortunate that my family were both Saskatchewan farmers. Uh, in the, the southern part of Saskatchewan. So during the summer months, we'd always be on the farms, uh, you know, hanging out with all the animals and, you know, livestock, but still it's just out in these big fields with animals. And then, yeah, and then from there, when I was four years old, my family moved from southern Saskatchewan to up to the high Arctic to Baffin Island. And how was that? It was amazing. And if you don't know where Baffin Island is, you get on an airplane in Chicago and you fly straight north for three and a half hours. Uh, and you land on this island that's windswept with no trees, that's icy and cold, and it's the barren lands, and uh, the views are great because there's nothing to block it. You know, you just could see forever in every direction, and as a kid, to be out playing with 24 hours of light where you can see all night, you know, and, and to be, your parents wouldn't worry about you because there was no real major threat or concern, you know, in a community like that. Everybody took care of everybody. And so you could be out as long as you wanted without mom and dad, uh yelling for you? Yeah, I mean, mostly. I mean, there's two phases to my life. You know, living in uh, Akala was one thing. That was a bigger city. It had sort of more threats that you get with a city with a population of, you know, bringing in drugs and booze and all those problems that start to come into a community like that. But when we moved to another tiny community called Kimmerud, when we moved there, it was Lake Harbor. Um, my mom was a school teacher. My dad was a, a settlement manager at the time, heavy-duty mechanic as well. It really was the true sense of the word community where it was rude to knock on anyone's door back then. You'd never knocked on anyone's door if you wanted to go into their house. It was, it was it's, it's such an open door policy that you would just walk into any home any time of day. Really? Yeah. You would just walk into any room. There would often be a seal carcass in the middle of the, uh, the kitchen floor or a caribou carcass, or there'd be soup in, on, the, on the stove. And you would just, if you're hungry, you would eat. You would talk or you would relax and you'd go back outside and keep playing. And if you wanted to go carve soapstone, you would go into someone's carving shed and you would carve up some soapstone. I mean, it was just, just a really beautiful sharing community. So when you're seven, you move to this community that has less than 200 people. Um, in addition to what you just mentioned, just describe what the environment was like there. It was a town that was still very set in its traditional ways. We never had a telephone, we never had a television, we didn't have radio, we obviously didn't have computers, we didn't have sort of anything that would want to keep you inside the house. Our whole connection and the connection of that community and, and that world was to the land, was to being out on the water, to being out on the sea ice too. Uh, so that's where as kids we would play, that's where the 
the elders and the hunters would get food for the community. Everything was in this, this outdoor world. How easy was it to get supplies? Well, your supplies came once a year by ship, um, you, you know, so you would order all your dried food for the year. Uh, it would come by ship. Um, they would drop 2,000 pounds of groceries on the shore in, in, in August or early, early September when the icebreakers could finally get through, drop off these big pallets of food, and it was always a st stressful time to make sure that you did your shopping right. You didn't forget anything off your shopping list. But I remember my parents discussing, how much did you get enough, did you get enough cereal? Did you get enough canned whatever, you know? I mean, I grew up on powdered milk. You could buy some fresh groceries, but it was, you know, six to eight dollars in 1970 for a head of lettuce, and it was six dollars for a little jug of milk back then. You just couldn't afford it, so we lived on dried food and powdered food and canned food. Uh, what kind of pets did you have? <laughs> uh, didn't have any traditional pets. Uh, we had, uh, often the Inuit hunters would bring over and drop off a baby seal. Uh, if they went out and got the mom and tragically, you know, they would, they would eat it, but if they found this, the pup, they would keep it alive and bring it back to us kids to, to play with. And I had a pet seagull that I had for a long time. His name was Sammy the seagull, and the poor bird, um, he had a broken wing, and which is how he became my pet, and I really protected him and took care of him and loved Sammy, and, and I, but I really wanted more than anything was for Sammy to fly. And on the weekends, you know, when I had some time, I would take Sammy up to the top of a cliff, and I'm like, you can do it, Sammy. I didn't know anything about broken bones or broken wings back then, but I just, through sheer emotion and cheering, I'd huck Sammy off a 400-foot tall cliff and oh, watch no. poor Sammy do this death, death spiral back down to the earth and <laughs> boof, hit the... <laughs> hit the ground with a thud and I'm like, oh no, Sammy, and I'd run down there like, we can do it, Sammy, take poor Sammy back up to the top of the cliff and huck him again. And um, So I had Sammy for a long time and fed and that, him. That's not animal. <laughs> <laughs> so that's called true love for an animal. And um, yeah, and then tragically, somebody in town got the only cat in town and the only cat ate the only bird that couldn't fly. And, and so I had to say goodbye to Sammy, buried Sammy, but yeah, it's just, just my childhood. So, you know, when you were growing up, there were times when there were 100 mile an hour winds, it's 30 below zero, and here you'd be running outside, burying yourself in the snow and sitting there for hours. Um, why and what would you do? <laughs> um, you know, you need to entertain yourself. So I'd love to, if you realize the insulating property of snow, it was just fun to be out in a howling blizzard. Like we did have wind. Uh, I remember one storm, the wind was over 100 miles an hour for a week, and I was a kid, and we just would love to sneak outside and bury ourselves in the snow, and we often did that, just to see who could last the longest. You know, kids have to compete, and what do you compete with when you have no Xbox or PlayStation? You, you bury yourself in a snowbank and see who can last the longest before you, you freeze and have to go back in the house. Uh, but yeah, we had some bad storms. To one storm that several people died, and. Um, uh, where people were lost on the land and I, even my dad and the community went out to try and we couldn't leave our house we had a two-story townhouse uh, and you could not see out of the front window because the snowbank was so high that it was over 20 feet tall blocking the front window in order to get out of the house we had to tunnel uh, a tunnel that was under deep deep snow just to get out of our house uh, and so when we finally the storm subsided we had to basically dig out this whole community um, and I know that they went even to looking for places like the correction center. You know, the police station was a one-level building that was they were looking for it, but they were sitting on top of it on in their snowmobiles, like saying, "I know it's got to be here," but the complete you know jail was buried by snow. How do you think your parents influenced you? My dad was 
you know, I, I look back and he was a, a provider for the community. He was a strong man. He was an honorable man. He, um, he could fix absolutely anything when in a community like this. It was, it was just impressive to see the Inuit who were already incredibly gifted at fixing things because you have to be able to fix things. But my dad was always in high demand, fixing snowmobiles, fixing trucks, fixing, fixing vehicles, fixing homes. Uh, it was just always, and my mom was, uh, I just loved how she got involved in the community. She would go into bannock baking contests, you know, which where they make bread or, you know, seal boiling contests. And, and we were just very involved in the community and very much a part of it. And I just really admired how that, they, my family was always uh, very humble and very grateful and, and um, just to learn that respect for other cultures and other people's and other people's lives and, and uh, it was always I felt safe and and uh, felt like we could navigate comfortably through through spaces like this. What do you think they did that even if indirectly led you to taking the path that you took? I mean to be honest my dad always told me that photography was a waste of time and money and I needed to get a real job and I needed to go off and become an engineer or you know work for the government and you know that was that mentality back then that you had to get a job work till you were 60 you retire and then you start living your life and you know and he resisted me on that but it's so funny when I wanted to leave my good government job when I was 26 years old uh, I had a lot of resistance from my dad. My mom's like, son, go follow your heart. You got to do what you got to do. She was. Yeah, much more supportive. She even would sneak me once in a while when I was starting photography, she would sneak me in and help me buy a, one of my lenses that I couldn't afford or, you know, but my dad was, was pretty much against it. But once I set off on the path and it looked like I was on it, happy and doing things well, he was then, he just wanted me to succeed in life. And once I showed that I was successful on the path that I chose, he was then very proud, probably more proud than anybody. He just, it was embarrassing to go into his house that every wall was covered in my images, that images that I was embarrassed about, you know, cause you grow as a photographer. It's just like terrible photography. And he was just so proud of these big prints that I'd given him through my path as, a, as an artist. And uh, yeah, so. You're eight, nine years old uh, and you take a photo and your mom helps you develop it. How old do you recall that? You know, I was just, when you grew up in the North as a kid, you think that nothing is available to you. I, I think you look at this big world out there and you're in awe of the world. You're in awe of Jacques Cousteau. You're in awe of everybody who is achieving something in life. And I looked at everybody with a camera and I'm like, that will never be available to me in life. But you're just in awe. And I remember my mom had a camera. She had a Pentax K1000, the simplest of manual cameras you could have back then. And she had a little light room in our in our food cellar and she would go in there and she would shoot black and white pictures and she would develop them and then she would process these images and just seeing this world, this black and white seascape come to life of Inuit hunters out on the ice hunting and traveling, I was just blown away by it. It was, just, it was magic to me just to, and, and all of a sudden to, you see it with your eyes and then to see an image get developed and come up and e to even be more beautiful, a more beautiful representation of what you've just witnessed. I just thought it was a powerful thing, but at that point still as a kid, you would never think that it was ever available to me. I didn't first pick up my mom's camera until I was 16 years old, you know, so it's, uh, but I was in awe of the process. And she was taking outdoor photos? Mostly outdoors okay. with, with the Inuit, being on the land. We traveled a lot. We would camp for weeks at a time, traveling across the sea ice, going on, you know, hunting and my dad again, providing for the community and being out there with the Inuit and she was, capturing that, that way of life. What was it about a picture you later took uh, in college that you showed to a professor that really impacted you? 
Yeah, I remember I, I, I was obsessed with diving when I was 19 years old. When I found out when I went to the University of Victoria that I could, for 150 bucks, get certified in, in diving and go beneath the waves. And they had a really intensive course. And then right away I got a little Nikonis camera. Um, and I took that camera down and all of a sudden just started shooting. And I started becoming obsessed with bringing this underwater world back up to the surface. And then when one of my professors, Dr. Fontaine, who's a world authority in invertebrate zoology, marine invertebrate zoology, I showed him a couple of my images and he was like, wow, that is incredible. Can I get a copy of that? I need to use that for my teaching my students. And I was like, whoa, I have a purpose. I mean, here's a guy who's the best in the world at what he does. And here's little old me with my camera who just impressed him in a world that he's an expert in. I realized that there was a role for me in, in visual storytelling. I remember reading some story that you were trying to convince your professor not to flunk you in a class, at least give you a D where you promised you would never go into that field. But to what extent did you like feel like a, a failure because you just weren't cutting it? I had I was a, I was really a bad student. I had attention deficit disorder. I, I could not not medically diagnosed, but I could never read a textbook. I could never get through a paragraph. If I was not interested in something, you could not force me to read that or memorize one sentence of it. So I struggled in school because I really didn't enjoy it. When I grew up with the Inuit in Baffin Island, your school was on the land. You, you, you went out on the land to learn about ice and snow and traveling and conditions and changing elements and weather. We didn't spend much time in school learning from books. So I've never learned to be a good student. And now you're in university trying to compete with this, this system of brilliant minds. And I was, I was just barely getting by. I was not into it. I was not happy. But rather than run from it, I'm like, I'm going to finish school as fast as I can. And so, I mean, I dove seven days a week. My, my dorm room in, in residence smelled like a seaweed farm. It, <laughs> I was not popular. They were going to kick me out of residence on university because... Legitimately? It, legitimately, because I, it stunk so bad. And I had all my <laughs> dive gear in there. Um, I had very little money. I would go diving. I would often put my tank and my dry suit and my dive gear on, on my, get on my little motorbike, and I would drive off the dives and go do a dive and get on my motorbike or drive back to residence. I, I understand at some point early on you would stay up all night writing on paper what you wanted to do with your career. Well, it was, it was actually, I was going into my genetics exam and... You had an epiphany. And I had an epiphany. I just, instead of studying, I'm like, you know what? Maybe I'm going to drop out of school because I'm going to fail this exam. I'm going to fail this course. I just can't keep doing this. And I just started to sketch out and do goal setting all night. I just started to write goal setting of what I was going to do with my life, the animals, the species, the, the storytelling, the conservation work that I was going to do with my life. And I just started sketching out this path forward for me in life. And as I did that, and I was like going to work for National Geographic someday, I was going to mostly specialize in the polar regions, diving under the ice, bringing this world to the this underwater world to the rest of the world. And I just started to energize me. And by, you know, I'm still like late, late into the night. And I'm just like still going and excited. Went into the exam. Again, it was just, it was just another language I was looking at on that exam paper. I knew I was going to fail. And I wrote the professor a letter on my back of my exam. I said, look at I, I know I'm going to fail this course. And I promise you I'll never go into genetics. If you could just please set me free. I want to be a National Geographic photographer. I know what I want to do. I'm proud to be a biologist. I want my degree. If you could just pass me. And, um, and sure enough, I, I went to the board and I knew I'd failed because I didn't even write the exam. I mean, I was just, there's no point. And I went and looked up on the board and there was a D and I'm just like, oh, thank you so much. Because you're young, you're only 20 years old and you've, or 21 years old and you've got this path in your mind. You can feel it, you can taste it, you want it. 
and there's sort of life and being young all getting in the way, all mixed up in this convoluted soup, you know, and, and it just at this point, just to, to figure it all out, all of a sudden you just got this little inch forward down this path, and it's like, yep, I must be on the right path, you know, and you just keep, keep pushing. You don't become a photographer initially, but you become a biologist, and you were depressed in being a biologist. What about it made you feel that way? I was, I loved the work. The work to me, a lot of the work was very important. I love my colleagues. I, I liked the work that they were doing. I think, of course, everything's built on science. We need science. But what I didn't like is being a government employee in a government office. And I came into that with that same passion and conviction. I'm going to save the world. I'm going to change the world. And all of a sudden, to come into this machine that just slows you down and almost steals your soul, and you sit there at your desk, for day after day being ineffective, you know, and I even, I got this pretty high-ranking job at the age of 22 years old as a government biologist, and I, it took a year, but I took the first demotion I could to become a field technician, a field biologist, which meant I got a pay cut, which means I didn't have to spend as much time in the office, I could be out in the field helping other scientists who were very good at what they did, and I basically helped them with their, their field research. Why did you feel like you were abusing bears? <laughs> You know, any species I worked on, you know, again, the, the, the data is quite important, but to take any animal, whether it's a lynx, a wolverine, a wolf, or especially a polar bear, this dominant, powerful animal, this thousand-pound male bear, and to run it down by snowmobile to, until it's defecating all over itself or chase it by helicopter and it's, it's pooping all over itself and to stick a dart in it and it goes down and it's, it's salivating and you've taken this beautiful arctic nomad and reduced it into a pile of, of you know, sleeping fur on the ice and then you cut a nail, take some hair samples, you put a big green lip tattoo into the skin on its lip, you punch holes in its ear and then you take on females only, you take a big radio satellite radio collar and you strap that around her neck. And you, when you leave that animal that I've always been in awe of, you've left this sort of bleeding, green, dyed hump of polar bear. And that's just not how I wanted to see bears. As, as you know, for me to be sitting on the sea ice and to look out and to see a mother polar bear and her two cubs of the year, these two little cubs, and she's come out of her den and she has to catch a seal. She's looking down and She's, she, seals have six holes, so how does he, she catch a seal? No, she's, I could watch her stationing her seals at each hole, and then she herself, when the seal would come up to breathe, the cubs would chase the, the seal back down, and it would, you'd see the other cub pounce. The seal couldn't get a breath, and eventually the seal's panicking. Mom's hiding. It would come up, and mom would grab it, pull the seal out, and feed her cubs. But to, to witness that and want to photograph it versus turning that into a couple of data points on a sheet of paper, you know, one didn't feed my soul and the other one did. So after four years of this, I was becoming more and more obsessed with photography and, and going down that path. Um, I, again, I didn't know that it, it was a path available to me, but obviously a, a government job paid well. And, but at some point, I, against every, now my mom's against me, everybody's against me, do not quit a good government paying job. All my colleagues said, do not quit. And, and um, what was their reasoning? Just, the just good money? you've got a security. You're you're 26 years old now. Uh, you've got an amazing job. What are you doing? I mean, if you crank this out for 20 more years, you could retire. And I'm like, guys, I'm out. I'm I'm gonna go, um, go on a journey and see if if I can make it in this world. And not many people make it as you know full time professional wildlife and nature photographers. 
So then I set off on the craziest journey of my life, you know, at that point. How do you think science is flawed in terms of just connecting with people? I mean, often the best scientists that I've ever worked with, the, the most brilliant scientists with the biggest minds, with the biggest ideas, they're often, almost always, the worst communicators. They are left brain dominant people. They see the world in math and numbers and data, and they're brilliant. But to have them convey that message to the rest of the world, it's a disaster. They can't communicate. Some once in a while you meet somebody who somehow has both hemispheres of their brains developed, that they're amazing scientists and they're amazing communicators, but it's not the norm. And so that's where I started to see my role. I mean, I hated data. I hated reading scientific papers. I did not, you know, I liked being out on the land with the animals, but I didn't like the scientific process. So I thought if I could just bridge the gap between this important scientific work and the rest of the world by becoming a visual storyteller, now I see a role that I can play in this journey. I think when you quit being a biologist, you'd like $65,000 in the bank. Why decide to go alone to the Arctic? You know, I, I had saved up $65,000, and to me at that point, it was an endless supply of money. But, yeah. to, but photography is very expensive. You know, just to buy my big lens is $12,000. You know, to buy a new body is $4,000, a new camera body. So, I mean, you can go through that money very quickly. But, you know, to back up is when I left my job, I needed to essentially go, I hate to say it, but find myself or to go process. And I was angry. I was frustrated. I remember... Angry at what? Just at the world, at life, at the government, you know, frustrated that I wasn't living my dream. I wasn't on this path, was path, was purpose. And I, I got this small grant to go on this expedition. I think the government gave me $8,000 as an artist grant. And I bought, you know, 200 pounds of food. I uh, took my camera gear, I took my camping gear, I took my lifetime of knowledge of being out on the land, being out in the wild, and went up to a community called Inuvik, which is up on the Arctic Ocean, and I had him fly me a couple hundred miles or 300 miles out in the middle of the Barren Lands in, in May. It was icy and cold and, and just basically winter, and he landed me on a frozen lake, and he dropped me off there with all my supplies, and I took all 600 pounds of gear out of his little airplane, had a sled to pull things around, and I'd stopped in on the way to, to a, a trapper's camp to pick up an inflatable canoe. I didn't even know if it would work. Um, and I began this three-month journey of living alone on the Barren Lands. How far were you from civilization? I can't even remember, but because you know we didn't have GPS back then. But I was but far. Like you could never walk. You were you were alone. And I just remembered this the first couple of days when I put up my big tent and I'm sitting there with all my gear and it's just deafening quiet. A storm settled in like a blizzard, and I was just started to like a little moment of depression of like, what the heck am I doing? What, 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 I just left my job and I'm sitting here in the middle of nowhere and like, now what, loser? You know, what are you, what are you gonna do? I remember just, I find from being, you know, so frustrated with my work that I had all these little voices in my head and they were always, you know, sort of saying you're gonna fail and you know, everybody who sort of told me I was gonna fail if I left my job, I had these little voices nagging me. And I remember um, just sitting out there on the tundra and, and you know, being really concerned and scared and worried and, and questioning everything. And, and all of a sudden, after being out there for two weeks, I almost slipped back to my childhood where I entered into this meditative state of being out in nature again and everything calmed down. I started to see, you know, wolves and bears and, and 
and falcons flying around and eagles and all of a sudden I started to feel home again. And then all of a sudden the ice broke up and the river came to life, the Big Horton River dumping ice out to the ocean and I started to get my equipment ready to go on this expedition and sort of all this negativity started to leave me and just sort of as a joke I remember my wife at the time knew I was at a low point before this expedition and I had mentioned to her that you know at three in the morning while I'm sitting there packing eating a big bag of junk gummy bears that you know I was watching this dude on TV I'd never heard of named Anthony Robbins and and I you know I didn't I just mentioned it to her so as a joke she kind of slipped his book into my gear and as I'm unpacking all my gear out there I, I come across this book by Awaken the Giant Within and it couldn't have been better because as I'm sort of working through all these emotions all of a sudden here's goal setting again here is um, if you know you can't hold a negative thought for more than 10 seconds if you do you have to start over and I did these these things as I'm reading this book and all of a sudden it took me 30 days to do the 10 days without a negative thought and all of that played a key role. And by the end of the expedition, after three months, I remember being out there, I lost 50 pounds. I just hiking, hiked over a thousand kilometers. I paddled hundreds of kilometers. I turned into this fitness machine out there, you know, being out there in nature. And I, the goal setting that I'm doing, I couldn't, I didn't bring a big scrapbook, but I was writing on everything I could, planning out my future again. And all that affirmation started to bubble to the surface again that I knew exactly what I was going to do for the rest of my life. And I wouldn't have been able to do that if I couldn't have had that clear time to, th to think and reflect and be out there in fresh air. So how do you get to the point then where you're broke and sleeping in your car in negative 40 degree weather? Yeah, I, you know, it's like no matter what, I am going to make it in this, this, this career as a photographer. And I started to photograph and shoot and try and get published in every magazine I could and newspapers, whoever would have my work, I would write articles for people. And it was just, it wasn't enough. I mean, photography is expensive, you know, to buy the equipment and to travel and uh, to go to locations and to live there on the land. And, and, you know, I went back to Baffin Island and photographed bowhead whales and walrus. And, you know, it was just, it was just an expense, expensive pursuit. And I didn't understand the business. I had no business sense. I didn't know you had to make more than you were spending, you know, I mean, some basic economics and also before you know it, you're broke. But it didn't bother me. I kept finding ways to, to, to stay out there. What was involved with being a tundra buggy driver? I had to get creative and finding ways to stay out there on the land to be around the animals and the species that I wanted to photograph. So I thought, hey, I, I can't afford to pay $160 a day to go be uh, on a tundra buggy uh, photographing bears. So I thought, hey, I have a biology degree. You know, I worked as, on polar bears as a biologist. Um, helping other biologists and I thought if I could become a tundra buggy guide I'm gonna be out there all the time so sure enough they accepted my job application and now I'm a tundra buggy drive I'm driving around these big tundra buggies with you know anywhere from 10 to 50 people on the machine with me entertaining them teaching them about bears but every time a bear showed up I would you know it wasn't as if I had the same privileges of photographing as a paying client but I still got to shoot and sure enough lo and behold one day I was on the buggy with Tom Walker, who is an amazing, uh, or not, he'd done some work for National Geographic, but an amazing wildlife photographer. Tom Mangelson was an amazing, one of the most famous wildlife photographers in the world. And one night they want to see my pictures and I'm showing them my polar bear stuff that I've been collecting over the years as a biologist, being out there. And they're like, this is some of the best stuff we've ever seen. I'm like, huh, really? And they were like, keep going, you're doing great. And so that was just that affirmation again, that little bumps along the way that, that's why I mentor and, and encourage almost everybody I meet who are, who are chasing a dream. You know, just give them little bumps and it means a lot. At what point did you realize you no longer had to take jobs on the side? 
Um, do, still you know, do. They, I still I still do jobs on the side, but no. I mean, but the you know the photographs could sustain you if you wanted. I think it was probably I had been at it for maybe five or six years, and, and I was starting to make, you know, I was at that point spending 60 grand a year, but making 70 grand a year, and I was like, I'm making it. And then, you know, by the next year, I was making 100 grand a year and spending 60 grand a year. And it was at that point where I got mentored by Flip Nicklin from National Geographic and Joel Sartori from National Geographic. They took me under their wing. One of which you first wrote to when you were, I think, 17. I wrote Flip Nicklin. My mom helped me write him a letter when I was 17 years old, and explained and I mean I probably get five letters a day right now saying the exact same thing I follow your work this is my dream this is who I want to help become what can you help me with this journey and he never wrote me back and I was pretty devastated and all of a sudden I found out that he was working filming polar bears photographing polar bears for National Geographic and I said to everybody I don't care what happens you must make Flip Nicklin and I come together on this on this thing I was a tundra buggy driver and there he is I'm in my tundra buggy drive and I'm working I got my my guests on board and all of a sudden a tundra buggy pulls up and it's Flip Nicklin and he's like hey it's Flip and uh, I hear you're looking for me I'm just like <laughs> and he goes let's go have dinner tonight let's talk and so we talked and, and it was great and then no way yeah and so I was just like I'm just sitting there like my eyes are this big and I'm just like I'm 27 28 years old now I'm just like I can't believe this is happening and I was just very proud and then all of a sudden it was very interesting that his tundra buggy broke down the next day and my, the company I was working with said, uh, sorry, Flip, your machine's done and we don't know what to do, but you're out. You know, we, we can't get you another machine. And Flip's like, but I'm on assignment for National Geographic. And I said, look it. I said, give me that piece of junk little machine over there. Let's get it running, a different machine, a Tundra buggy. And I said, I will come off the clock. I will guide Flip for free and I will take him out for his week to f fulfill his contract. And so he, we did. And uh, off we went together and uh, for one week he just, told me I just drilled him with questions and he just said he was enjoying the moment and and I just asked him thousands of questions and just I helped him and got him in position and helped him get his shots and all of a sudden here I am with my mentor my hero on a National Geographic assignment helping him and I'm even shooting behind the scenes for him and, and stuff like that and we just had a an incredible time together and 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 he said someday I'm gonna help you because you've got the drive, the passion, the commitment, the work ethic, and I, I can help you with the final stages to get there as a photographer. And, and he fulfilled his, his offer two years later. Really? Yeah. He just called my wife and I at the time and said, why don't you move down to Whidbey Island in, on, in Coopville near Seattle? Uh, move in with me. I won't pay you, but I'll teach you everything I know, and I'll help you get into National Geographic. And he did. Why did he do it? I think he did it because he just... I think at some point in your journey of life, you get to be so good at what you do and, and you're, you've reached the pinnacle of your career. And I think in most of the great people I've met, they always ask themselves, how do I give back? And in this case, he saw somebody who had the potential to, to go all the way and to carry on the, the, the torch of doing good journalism, good conservation work and good storytelling. And I think he just thought it was a good investment of his time. How do you go about preparing for a shoot? Wow, um, I do a lot of research. It depends on if, if I know the subject intimately. If it's a story, my first story I did for National Geographic was on Atlantic salmon. It, it took me six months of doing research. I had 600 contacts. 
uh, in seven different countries before I even took a picture, before I even got sent on the assignment. Um, so it's just a ton of research. And then you have to get all your, your equipment and you've got to get your rebreathers and your dive gear and your backup diving gear and your, your soft no line, which is a rebreathing supply. You've got to pack your camera equipment. You've got to figure out where you're going to stay and uh, how you're going to get that there, how much excess baggage is going to cost. And you just fly there with all your stuff on location and you always put yourself in position in a staging area where you can work from there and go off and do your shoots. And what's the process in which you'll research? Just pick up the phone. I mean, things have changed now with Google. I mean, when I started, we didn't have Google, you know? So back in the, um, the early 2000s, you know, in late 90s, early 2000s, the internet was just kind of getting there and Yahoo was terrible. And <laughs> nowadays with the tools we have today, but it's just, picking up the phone and hey Joe and well Joe you should talk to Jane and Jane you should talk to Bob and you know you just keep getting sent down down the path and eventually you you meet somebody and my ultimate goal in an assignment is by the time you arrive on location you've done you should have done so much research that you sketch those image the exact images that are burning in your right side of your brain before I even go off an assignment I have a sketchbook of images that I'm going to make that are going to allow me to tell my story for that for that issue and those images are what? I call them, I, let's do a baseball analogy. I have, an, I have, every story needs to have one or one, two or three home runs, where it's just so powerful that someone's flipping through a magazine, it's just like bang. It is so powerful that you lure them into the story. You need to have a few of those. Then you've got your storytelling images, your point pictures, people, pictures that help expand that story and then you love to end off that story with another home run or another couple of home runs and and you know so you're I call them your first base and your two base hits are still important in a story to help win the game but uh, you need the home runs to really grab people. And how much is that what you call pre-visualization? Tons. I mean, I pre-visualize everything I do. Before I come up this coast where we're working on bears right now, I have pre-visualized where I want to be in the river. I know exactly what image I want to make. I know uh, what lens I'm going to need to make that. I know where I want the light in the sky. And we say the difference between an amateur and a professional photographer is amateurs take pictures, professionals make pictures. You know, you, I only take five to ten really good pictures a year, and if they're going to be amazing, then I need to know, I need to pre-visualize the light, the tide, the current, the mood, the feeling that that image is going to have. And in order to do that, so I have to know where the moon's going to be. I need to know where the sun's going to be at that time of day. I need to know, is it going to be high or low tide? I need to know, do I want the bear at the, the top of the tide or at the bottom of the tide, you know, of the tide zone. So I just, you visualize all these things and then you go through the process of waiting and waiting and waiting for that moment to come together. But that's the difference. How much patience do you need? Endless. I mean, patience shouldn't even be when people say, wow, you have patience, it's like, yeah, yeah, of course, you have to have patience. You need passion, and the passion for telling a great story, for having a conservation win, is what fuels the patience. Because by the time, when I visualize an image that I'm going to make, then it's going to come down. Sure, I'd love it to happen on the first day, but it almost never does. It, it may happen on the first week, which would be great. But quite often, it doesn't happen the whole first season, where you sit there, at, they say, in the fall for a two-month stretch, it doesn't happen, but I just gained and learned and gathered more intel that's going to allow me to succeed the next year. So my narwhal story, for example, that was seven years of going back every year before I figured that out for two good hours of shooting in seven years on narwhals. My spirit bear was three good days of shooting in two seasons. You know, it, it's just putting in that amount of time to succeed. And I'm very proud that 
Uh, I've never failed a story at National Geographic. Out of the 22 assignments I've done, I've been close. I've been really close. But I just persevere and push through and, and just dream of, of, of succeeding. What's the longest you've gone without sleep? I've gone for two and a half days without food and sleep, just on the narwhal shoot, where it just did not want to... We were in the zone, it was happening, things were happening, and we had to get it now, and we just worked through for over about 55 hours straight. How do you last that long and be conscious, coherent? When you've been chasing something for eight years, and it's in front of you, and it's happening, you know, you don't need anybody, you know, you're... It's the opposite of a government job where you watch the clock and you go in and then you do your eight, eight hours and you go home. I mean, it's just like you are so fueled up on adrenaline at this point because it's all happening. And you're so high on life because you are witnessing things that you've only dreamed of witnessing. You've been failing. I've been now failing for eight years and all of a sudden I'm succeeding. Factor doesn't, sleep doesn't factor into the equation at that point. Getting the shot, getting the story and getting these images is what matters and that's it. So. How do you think you've grown as a photographer? I think I've matured greatly as a photographer. I don't panic anymore. Where I, I, I've gotten rid of all the little voices that come into my mind of, you're not good enough, you're, not, uh, you're gonna fail at this assignment, you're out of your league, they're not gonna like your work, they're, they're gonna see through you, they're gonna see that you're a fraud, you're never gonna get the pictures, the narwhals aren't gonna show up, the, the polar bears are gonna run away when they see you, all those, the neuroses that feeds into your mind. And so when I mentor young photographers now, it's very much, helping them deal with their little voices that we all have them uh, where they try and beat you down all those negative voices and it's just now I go into an assignment going I'm gonna I'm gonna crush this you know I'm gonna go do the best body of work ever done on this species in this habitat and and the readers are gonna love it we're gonna educate people we're gonna have conservation wins and we're gonna make change you'll take 50 or a hundred thousand photos for a 12 photo assignment why the most I've ever shot on assignment was a hundred thousand images uh, I try and not torture my poor editors at National Geographic. I try and get anywhere from 20 to 40 or 20 to 50,000 images, which is a lot of pictures. That's like, say that. that's over 12 to 1,500 rolls of film back in the days when we were shooting film. That's just torture to anybody to look at that much photography. But I, again, I've, I've visualized it. I've sketched it on a piece of paper. I've burned that image into my mind. And I may get close over and over and over, but I don't let it go until I get it and either better than what I visualized or, or almost as good, but I just have to keep pursuing that. And that means I've shot that image, like take any example, an emperor penguin flying out of the water coming at me, I knew that was a picture I was gonna take on that assignment. I got it the first day, probably good enough to publish, but it'd be okay, it'd be just an average picture in the story. Here is a situation that had a chance to be amazing. I shot it every day for 30 days. Every day when they'd, some penguins would come flying out of the water, I'd be there to keep hitting it, hitting. So, out of my 100,000 pictures on that assignment, you know, 15,000 of them are penguins flying at you, and there's hundreds of keepers, there's only two that are really, really, really good. What was the difference between those two and the rest? Just that three-dimensional feel. I want to transport people into my images. I want them to be there. I want them to feel what it's like to be next to me with an 80-pound bird going 30 miles an hour, flying through the air, about to hit you in the head, water exploding off his body as he's coming out of the water. I want them to feel that. In order to do that, I have to have, I have to be close, it has to be wide, it has to be intimate. And how do the number of photos that you'll take on a shoot compared to other top photographers? Uh, some, like the wildlife photographers, I mean, Flip Nicklin could go shoot 20 rolls of film on narwhals and come back with a successful story. He's so good at visualizing what he wanted to do. 
I'm not like that. I need to sketch and feel and work my way into that situation. And for me, it's a long process of feeling with my camera. Everyone works differently. So Nick Nichols is another you know person I respect at National Geographic. He shoots up to 100,000 in a story, a huge number of images. Joel Sartori shoots 10 to 20,000. Brian Scary, who I work with, shoots 10 to 20,000. So I just, I just, um, my editors, I think, see my hard drive come in. I could feel them. <laughs> I just feel them. What's uh, the process for them in going through it? It's a process of elimination. So if I shoot 100,000 pictures, they have to look at every frame. My, my editor at National Geographic, Kathy Moran, the poor woman, she's, she's amazing <laughs> what she does, but she's like, you shoot every picture and I'll look at every picture. Never worry about shooting too much. And so she'll take 100,000 images and probably chop it down to 10,000 the first round, then down to 2,000, then she'll look at them all again, she'll get them down to 500 at that point, then I'll fly to the headquarters in Washington, D.C., and then together we'll look at the top 500 images and we'll discuss the merits of each, and, and ultimately we get down to our 40 images that we're gonna show the editors at National Geographic in a slide presentation. Everybody, all the, the mucky mucks at Nat Geo will sit in this little pressure cooker room. Wait, and, wait, and before you get yeah. to that point, it takes her how long to cut down all those photos? Weeks. Weeks. Takes her weeks to sit there and cut down to go from 100,000 images. And most people go through their pictures and they go, I like this one, this one, this one. You can't do that. I mean, my, my Spirit Bear cover, I never liked the picture in the beginning, I, but I kept seeing it. I didn't like it, didn't, but it was good enough to keep around. And by the time we got down to the final 60 images, it's just like my editor looked at it and went, that's an amazing picture. And I'm like, really, why? And we discuss it and I'm like, I'm uh, like, yeah, you know what, you're right. Then you all of a sudden fall in love with it. Now it's one of my classics. And I did not like that picture, but I had to see it through the process of elimination 10 different times before I fall, fell in love with it. So that room in DC with the National Geographic editors, you come in with how many photos and set the scene and what goes on? You go in there with your images and you sit down in the very front seat. The director of photographer sits next to you uh, the CEO often quite often comes into that room. They invite their other donors and supporters of National Geographic in the room. All the other department heads are in that room. All of a sudden, there's 40 people in that room sitting behind you. And National Geographic is a magazine. They always say to us, you know, we pay you to make images, uh, not excuses. It better be good because somebody, David Dubelay just went before me. Flip Nicklin just went before me. Nick Nichols just went before me in that room. And they're the best in the world at what they do. They're the Wayne Gretzky's of photography. And all of a sudden you're up and it better be good. And you have to sit there and you have about 15 minutes to spin your tray of 40 images. And you don't get to touch the remote. You're in the middle of saying, this was a unique situation where the Seawolf click, they cut you off. They just advanced over you while you're in the middle of talking. And you talk about dry mouth, you just feel the pressure because it's like they're not interested in what you're saying or the picture's not good enough. They're all busy. They've got jobs to do. And they don't have time to sit, you, sit and listen to you brag or pontificate or, you know, or, or make excuses or try and justify things. They just start cutting you off as you're really? talking. Yeah. So you're like, this was... Uh, and still happens now? Well, not so much now. I mean, I'm at a point now where... I've, you know, when you've been there for 20 years, uh, you've sort of figured out the system, and, uh -huh. you know, that they're busy and you don't talk for too long. But the nervous, when I was first there, nervous and young, talk, 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 you know, trying to give them as much information as you can. And, and you know, they're busy and they start cutting you off. I had one time, my editor, I came in with a story that was not very good on the Phoenix Islands. It was just a, a short assignment. The quality of the work wasn't great. You know, it was just a whole bunch of things happened. My editor and I, Kathy Moran, we weren't getting along about the story. She's, you know, she was calling me out and she was 100% right on, on the why it was weak. And I got defensive and 
I went into this room and, and Bill Allen, the editor-in-chief, he sat down with the remote and every picture I started to talk to, he cut me off and he cut me off for all 40 images. And I, by the time I didn't bring any water in the room, I forgot it. I was sweating, the room was spinning, I thought I was gonna black out. And I thought, my career's over. Like this dream I've been, just put 20 years into getting here, it just blew up in my face. I'm over, I'm done. And that's an awful feeling in that room with everybody sitting there watching you crumble. And um, turned out he was late for a meeting and he had to go and he didn't want to listen to me talk too much. So he just kept <laughs> cutting me off, you know? And, and the editor-in-chief turns around to everybody and they go, any thoughts? And everyone's like, no, okay. Walk out of the room, no thanks, no pat on the back or, I mean, now it's, that's the beginning of my career. Now it's like, great job, wow, good work, thanks a lot, you know, we're, the, our readers are gonna love this. And so you do get a lot of positive praise, but it's, it's kind of like being in the NHL that you get a contract and you're paid to be good. You're not paid to do okay and get a pat on the back, you know. It's like, we pay you, you better deliver, it's a job. And, and it's, a, it's a scary place to work. When you work for National Geographic, it's like being in the NFL, except there's only one team. And every time I said, like, I want to go do this story, like, who are you better than that? You know, who are you going to knock off the team? No, no, he's our quarterback. No, he's our wide receiver. Who are you going to replace on your team? And you start to think, yeah, I'm not good enough to replace people on this team. You know, you, you have to earn your spot on the team. And the only difference is you're only as good as your last story, just like a, a football player. You're only as good as your last season. You know, it doesn't guarantee you a lifelong career. And the same, same thing with photography. What do you mean when you say the work is like your drug? I just, I think when you are such a visual person for me to, and you have chased something for so long, when all of those things come together at once and all the little voices leave your mind and you've succeeded in this assignment and you, the drug for me is just being close to these animals to, you know, when so many people have fear of a grizzly bear, but you're sitting there five feet from a mother and her cubs in a river and she's accepted you into her world and she's feeding and you're a fly on the wall. I mean, that's my drug. The feeling that I get in being around these animals alone in their habitat, helping tell their story, help, helping give them their voice is, is, is my drug. And that's what just, just feeds my soul. And I'll, that's what I'll never get tired of. How often do you work? Too much. Um, you know, I, I work nonstop. I mean, I work every day, seven days a week, and, and um, that's why I struggle when I try and mentor these young photographers. Like, oh, I'm going to go off with the, you know, the family or paddling in my canoe for a couple of weeks, and I'll be back. And I'm like, you work every day. And, and when you're on assignment, you work 18 hours a day or, or whatever it takes. You work 12 hours a day or 10 hours a day. And when you have a really bad weather day, that's your day to, to, to read a book or to or just to rest or to try and recover your energy. I love a big blizzard. When I'm on the sea ice and it's blowing 80 miles an hour and your tent's just like screaming, I'm like, I am forced to take some downtime. And I like that moment. But the rest of the time, you're out there working. And, uh, and once you've done your job, once you've come back with all these images and your, your visuals to share with the world, then you've got to edit them. Then you've got to get into lecture tour. And then you've got to do your social media. It's, it's endless, but I, I can't imagine any other path. So seven days a week, on average, how many hours a day, you think? It just depends. If you're in the field, you're working, in a way, 24 hours a day. When I work in the Arctic, it depends where I'm working. If I'm working in the Arctic or in the Canadian Arctic in the summer, um, I get up at 6 p.m. I wake up at 6 p.m. I have breakfast till uh, 8 p.m. I prep all my gear, you know, and getting all ready. And by 10 p.m., I'm out the door on my snowmobile. Uh, and I shoot until 
6 or 7 a.m. when the light's beautiful. I've shot through the whole night, uh, which is now you know 24 hours of sunlight. So I've shot through that whole evening, and then I'm back and prepping all my gear and putting all my stuff and downloading my pictures until noon, and then I'm in bed at noon, and then I, I sleep till 6 p.m. And, and then uh, So that's my cycle. When you're a, a wildlife and nature photographer specialist, you work to the rhythms of nature. And that, that could be, again, like working 48 hours straight when the conditions are right, or hunkering down when the wicked blizzard comes along. What are the drawbacks of being on the road 10 months a year? Fitness. Uh, people think you know, you're, a, you're a photographer out there, but you know, it's, it's being in hotels. It's, it's uh, not eating the way you want to eat. It's, it's not getting enough fitness, not having a routine. You know, when I'm home for three weeks, it's amazing how much better I feel just eating right every day, working out every day, in this routine, waking up in your bed, feeling so energized and refreshed. Uh, but our lives are out on the road. How did it impact the personal life? It was brutal. I was married to a great lady in, in the Yukon or, you know, for, for 20 years. And um, just seeing her for a month a year is not a normal marriage, you know. We never had any kids, but you just really grow apart with that person if you see them a month a year, 11 months apart. Or, you know, a really good year would be home, I'd be home four months. You know, in the worst years, I was home a month. And Would she come and visit you? Sometimes, but generally what I do is not a very romantic job. You know, it's sitting in sort of uncomfortable places and grinding it out. And um, so very rarely did she ever come in the field to see me. And, and you know, 20 years of that, and, uh, you know, it's just, it's just hard on a marriage. So now my new partner is, is um, she does exactly what I do. We travel almost always together. We do our work together, and it's just much, much healthier. Why decide against having kids? You know, when I'm sitting here preaching on climate change and the impact we're having on this planet, I th I'm always saying, what's the ultimate sacrifice? And it's, it's not having kids. And also, when you're gone 10 months a year, 11 months a year, you're not going to be a very good dad. So my kids became the environment, you know, became nature, being out there uh, trying to protect our planet has become sort of my fatherhood and my dedication to that. And everybody, people are always like, wow, you're really excited to meet my kids. So I think when I meet other people's kids, I get a little excited. I want to wrestle and play with them and play catch and go swimming and goof around with them. I just love other people's kids. And, and uh, that's been, that's been a you know, good part of the journey. How much of a struggle, if at all, was that for you in balancing whether or not you wanted to have kids with the passion for the work that you were doing? That's always was my biggest struggle. Is I was obsessed with my work. I loved every bit about it, but I realized it wasn't life. It wasn't a normal life. And I would always look at normal lives, and I would come to visit my friends when I'd get home from these expeditions, and they'd be having a barbecue by a lake with their family, and they would all be having normal conversations, you know. But I had just come back from a three-month solo expedition of living with the wolves and the bears, you know, which was my drug. But all of a sudden, I went, wait a minute. And, and it was hard, because I would look at their lives, and I became not envious. The Inuit have a beautiful world. It's called Tushu. It's, it's, in their culture, they don't have something of jealousy. Jealousy is not healthy. But Tushu means, I'm happy for you, but I wish for the same for myself. So I, I found myself craving this other world of, of family and kids and normalcy and routine. And, and I just it still sort of haunts me to this day that I don't have that. I'll never have that. I'll never have that normal life of sitting around with my kids and, and kids that I've, you know, conceived and, and watched grow up. And I love the concept of being a dad and passing on your knowledge. And, and you know, if I could have had time for that, I would have loved that. Uh, brushes with death. Uh, why has your loss of fear 
bothered you? Every time I'm about to do something dangerous, and that's say to get in the water, not even dangerous, but unknown, and you're about to get in the water with a thousand pound predator, or a thousand pound grizzly bear walks up to you, and everything in your body, your gut, you know, your instincts are saying, this is bad, you're gonna die. And through what I do with my work is you've learned to ignore these things. When I take off in a storm in my ultralighter in bad weather and I'm pushing, pushing myself to go get these images, your body's saying, don't do this. And I've called that the gray area. And I would just say that that fine line of what's gonna kill you and what isn't has turned into this big, muddy gray area for me. And so that's where, that's what I'm scared of right now that I'm like, I've done all these other things where my, my stomach has told me that I'm gonna die if I do this, and you lived. And so now you just keep pushing it and pushing it and pushing it. So now I'm at a point where I think I've pushed the limits of, of, of death or the limits of, of um, what's possible and what isn't. And, and I'm at the point now where I, I'm starting to listen to my gut a little more. You know, I don't want You are. Yeah, definitely. I'm, I'm definitely slowing down in the sense that I won't, push myself to 220 feet on a dive if it's, I mean, I'm watching my friends die around. My friend Rob Stewart just died on a rebreather. He was a guy who was gonna save the world and he was gonna live forever. And when your friends around you die, you know, I was working in the Canadian Arctic a few years ago and uh, working with a close friend of mine on our snowmobiles and we fell through the ice a couple times and we were able to get ourselves out and it was almost fun and adventurous. And then I, went back uh, home and two days later I get a call that he went through the ice on a snowmobile and died. And you're just like, it's, you start to realize that you are not invincible, that you, you will die if you keep pushing too hard. And so, um, and you know, and my friend Joel Sertori always tells me you can't take pictures when you're dead. So it's, uh, you know, it's, it's my goal now is to stay alive and stay in the game and um, keep, keep doing what I'm doing. And, and sometimes I have to say no to dangerous situations. Are there other ways in which you found yourself cutting back in terms of staying away from some of the danger? Not really. I mean, I'm, you know, like, I mean, yeah, I think so. I mean, I, you know, flying my ultralight airplane, I started to realize that after two airplane crashes and five engine failures uh, of trying to do something, you know, to flying is one thing, but trying to switch hands when you're in the cockpit, you take the doors off your little pusher ultralight and you got your camera and you're, you're trying to you know, work with, you know, fly and shoot at the same time, low level over the trees near mountains, to get a, a B-level photograph was not a smart use of time. I mean, I've done some really, now that you got me thinking about it, I've done some stupid stuff, like trying to get aerials in the Arctic before I bought my ultralight airplane to film narwhals. I hooked up a parasail that we had shipped through the mail that we had never opened before. We threw it out on the sea ice. I hooked it up to a snowmobile and told my buddy just to yank me off the ice. And all of a sudden I'm, I'm 400 feet up in the air behind a snowmobile with a parasail. And uh, the back of the snowmobile is coming up. So my buddy jumped on the back of the, ran up, jumped on the back of the snowmobile to keep it down. Then a crack opened up in the ice and there's a tailwind. And I fell the final 100 feet uh, when, this, when the parasail came down, I bounced off the ice, sort of ended up in this big slushy hole. My Inuit guy just stood over me going, oh, laughing, because it was like a nervous laugh. He thought for sure I was dead. I was surprised I wasn't dead. And I mean, just stuff like that. I'm gonna stop doing stupid stuff. I, I wanna start eliminating stupid stuff and just cowboy decisions and just be a little more calculated and thoughtful. So when you go down in cold water, describe the feeling and why you vomit. I used to vomit, now I work with a manufacturer called Waterproof Diving out of Sweden and I help them custom design some of their ice diving stuff so I no longer have 
the vomiting issue when I go down. But what, what's the difference? The difference is just wearing equipment that was so thin, designed for diving in British Columbia, thin hoods, thin neoprene, um, just not properly fitting gear. You know, have you ever had an ice cream headache where you drink a slurp, you know, one of your Starbucks drinks too fast? You get that ice cream headache, except you get that over your entire head. And just for some reason with my body's reaction, it's just to start puking. But now I wear enough equipment now, much better design hoods and stuff that that problem doesn't happen. But Can you still not feel yourself when you're taking photos? Oh yeah, after I mean, you still have all those problems. So I mean, you go down, so I just don't vomit anymore, but you within five minutes you lose all feeling in your lips and your face and within you know, 15 to 20 minutes, you lose all feeling in your extremities, your hands, your, your feet, everything gets extremely cold that that feeling goes away. After about half an hour to 40 minutes of diving in water that's 28, 29 degrees Fahrenheit, you start to shiver after 40 minutes. Your body's reaction is trying to warm you up. You're just cold almost to the point your teeth are chattering on your rag. You're just, uh, you know, and after about an hour of that, the shivering stops. You haven't felt your extremities for 40 minutes. Uh, your body's going into something that's it's like a blood shunting where it's keeping the blood to your heart, to your core, to your brain. It's removing it from your extremities, trying to keep you alive. And from there, you, um, you just, you, you know, at that point, when you start to cramp up, uh, the shivering stopped. If you're not getting out of the water by then, you're in trouble. And I've just, I've found myself pushing it to that point a few times. And that's another indicator now that I get out when the shivering starts. You know, I don't wait to the point where I'm cramped up and I can't move and you're, you're under the ice. If something happens, you're, you get a free-flowing regulator and all of a sudden you have to react, but you can't because you're, you're not thinking right, you're not feeling right, you're not working right, you're, your motor skills aren't there. So it's, it's just putting yourself in liability. Again, that just comes down to decision making. I want to run through some near-death experiences and get you to recall the moments, the first one being uh, second dive when you were 19 years old. Oh wow, you really did, went deep on research. My second dive out of the course, I had a new dry suit. I didn't even really understand how to use a dry suit. It's different than diving in a wetsuit. Um, I'm 19 years old. I'm diving off of Vancouver Island, British Columbia, just collecting crabs for dinner because I had no money. I was living off the ocean and my buddy and I, and I had a much bigger tank than he did and he was just better on air than I was. I didn't understand that at the time. And we're just swimming along and all of a sudden, I'm out of air. And I'm like, how can I be out of air? He's not out of air. So I'm sitting there burning up valuable time processing that I've just run out of air and I'm 40 feet deep and I have way too much lead weight on because I'm pushing along the bottom digging up these crab. And so I reach up and I grab them and, and we start to share our air. We're going up to the surface and I keep trying to add air to my suit, but I have no more air. You know, just stupid stuff. And, and we start sharing back and forth, but I'm starting to hog his air now because I'm kicking so hard to go up because I have no air to put into my suit or my BCD. And we start kicking up all the sediment. All of a sudden, he loses me. He lets me go. I sink back to the bottom now, and I'm tired, and he's gone up to the surface. And I'm back on the bottom, and I'm like, you know, but I've just done all my training, and I know that you have to dump your weight belt. No problem. I go to dump it. All I'm grabbing are lead bricks. All my belt has spun around on my suit and the belt buckles underneath my tank. And as I'm feeling this, I'm starting to black out. I'm just, I feel myself going down. I'm just like, and it was not that scary at that point. It's sort of almost peaceful, but I just, I remember, remember thinking, oh, my buckles under my tank and just frantically, just sort of, not frantically, but just grabbing. And all of a sudden was my buddy on the surface and he shook me, he's like, dude. And I sort of went down on the way up. I blacked out and just that close 
to, to hit the surface and him shake me. And I'm like, you know, and, and like to have not held my breath and popped a lung, to have not, you know, all these things that could have gone wrong on the way up and could have drowned. And this dive was just like, wow. So you don't think I don't check my gauge every 10 seconds on a dive. You feel really lucky to, to, to be able to learn from those moments. Chasing the walrus in Greenland and your regulator freezing. So diving with walrus is like diving with hippos. It's just, nobody does it, it's stupid, you're gonna get killed if you do it. And it's one of those, as you're going down, chasing walrus, and in this case, really bad visibility. Um, we were very unlucky with a big algae bloom, the, the water was terrible, uh, the viz. And chasing this animal that's got a really notorious for having a bad temper, for I've had them attack me before, I've had them put their tusks through my boat, I've had them rip open the floor of my zodiac before, and now here we are getting in the water with them to try and reveal their world you know, to the rest of the world and how they eat clams and how they, they feed, and, and it's just, it was fascinating. I was, you know, you're excited to do it, but the whole time you're like, I'm gonna die, I'm gonna die if I do this, I'm not gonna come back from this. And, all of a sudden, finally, this, this sea ice came into this bay where the viz was bad, and just the cooling effect of the water and all this ice there, it killed the algae bloom that was going on, all that photosynthesis, and the water cleared up, and, and the walrus were in there feeding, and I jumped in the water one day, and I'm down deep. I went deeper to get to, into the clear water, and I'm at 100 feet deep, and I'm chasing these two big bull walrus, and I'm swimming as hard as I can, and I'm just out of breath. I'm just like... <sighs> burning up and I'm alone and I've and got my big housing. I'm, I can see these two walrus in front of me and in my mind I'm like, I'm gonna fail this story for National Geographic. This will be the first, I'm not thinking I'm gonna die or this is dangerous, I'm thinking I'm gonna fail. And, and that's a dangerous place to be. And I all of a sudden, no air. And at that point when I'm already that deprived of, of oxygen, I'm just, I'm, I'm done, you know. I, but I, if you dump your weight belt, which is what you would do and you'd probably survive if it had been in the open water, but if you dump your weight belt under ice, you get stuck underneath the ice. You, you know, you're gonna be 40 pounds too buoyant at the surface, so you can't dump your weight belt. And now I just start going for the surface. You know, I can't add any air to my thing. I'm already a little bit heavy. I just start kicking for the surface, and I'm like, so I've always been curious how I'm gonna die. And I'm like, okay, I got it. I, now I know. And as I'm going up, I'm getting, you know, lightheaded and just gave me this, gave me the air again. So it's just so funny just mentally to go down that path of I know how I'm gonna die. And then it's just, and I sent the regs out after that, everything to get serviced. And what they figure uh, was that um, ice, there was so much moisture, the way we were filling our tanks in Greenland and up very in, in the evening when it was very humid that it was just building up moisture in the tank and ice formed inside the tank and blocked it. And so lucky that it formed, blocked it and then released again. Uh, but that was, that was a close one. I just had another one in Antarctica where I was diving under an iceberg, again, 29 degree Fahrenheit water, and, and just filming, and it's all going great. And all of a sudden, I got this free flow from this new regulator that from Sherwood that they were asking me to test this new model. The interstatic pressure of that reg was so amped up, I should have checked it again. But it's just blowing cold air into my mouth. And by the time I got to the surface, no big deal. Got up, you know, free flow. I know how to deal with that. Had my camera up. I pulled that rag out of my mouth and like, like liquid nitrogen, like steam came out of my mouth. And I realized I couldn't feel my tongue. I couldn't feel any of my teeth. I'd frozen the entire inside of my mouth. And from there I had, um, I was sick for almost a year just with the, with the amount of damage I did to my lungs from that. Just breathing that cold, cold air under high pressure on a dive. Set the scene and explain what happens when you were filming breeding elephant seals. Yeah, another one where 
Elephant seals are again like hippos. They just, they've got really bad tempers. And nobody had filmed breeding elephant seals underwater in Antarctica. And it's one animal that will swim up to a zodiac with 10 guests in it and bite down on that boat and fling people into the water. That's happened down there. Um, they have wicked tempers. And during the breeding season, you've got an 8,000 pound animal. That's an animal that's 18 to 20 feet long. It weighs as much as an F-350 pickup truck and he's got teeth that are five inches long and he's got a bad personality. And, and generally they're pretty nice, but they're, they're um, during the breeding season, they're either gonna kill you or breed you. And I thought I still need to get an underwater picture of a big adult male elephant seal. And I swam. So all, all that considered, you're like, All that considered, I'm it. like, finally we had clear viz. I could see an elephant seal in the water. The mistake I made is I didn't realize that it was the dominant breeding bull that he was going to kill and attack any other male elephant seal or any other threat that came near his harem of 300 females that he was breeding. We saw other males drown and kill females in the surf zone, breeding them in the surf because they're, and these are 1500 pound females that they're drowning by, but just getting on top of them and trying to breed them. They're so horned up to pass on their genetics. Um, that, you know, all that factored, I still jumped in the water and I swam up to this big bull and I'm alone, my assistant is down the beach and I'm swimming up to this bull and right away he sees me and I, I saw a boulder, I was nervous, my heart's pounding. I'm like, you know, again, this is a bad idea. If you do this, you're gonna die, but I'm gonna ignore that because I've survived every other time. I went up behind a big boulder, it's only four feet deep and this boulder's almost to the surface so I'm, I'm with this boulder hiding behind it and he sees me, his eyes are this big and he shoots straight over to me. And here comes this 18 foot long, 8,000 pound dominant breeding elephant seal. And I'm just like, oh shit. And as he came so fast, he came right around the rock. I now have nothing between us. And he rears up and I'm down in four feet of water on my back. And he's coming up on top of me and his head's probably, you know, three over three feet wide. And he lunges at me in this head and I'm looking in his mouth. And as he tries to bite down on me, all I can do is shove my dome inside his mouth and I can see his big teeth, and he's trying to bite me, he's trying to crush me, and every time he tried to lunge on top of me, all I could do to push off him was to get my dome in his mouth and push off him and push off him. So I kept pushing away from him as he's trying to bite me and crush me, and then I started to get closer to the shore. Now I'm in three feet of water. I tried to stand up so I could, you know, I've got flip fins on. I can't stop to do anything, and every time he hit me, I was just like, the force of hit when him hit was just the bang, and. And I got, now I stand up, and as I stood up, he saw that as a challenge. He reared up to 10 feet high and just threw himself at me. And I just got out of the way of that. And I started, you know, my story, I was like, ah! I was screaming like, boom, take another hit from him. Finally, my, my guy I'm working with saw I was in trouble and he came running down the beach and he distracted. He just came out and was waving at it, it turned on him for a second. And I crawled out of the beach and just again, bad decision, my fault, not, not the fault of the elephant seal, just I made a stupid decision. and. It almost cost me, but I got in the water with another breeding bull after that and I got his picture, so it was good. To what extent do you think when your time comes, it ends up being on a shoot? Yeah, I, I, I just somehow feel like I've, I, all the 20 lives that I've burned up, I feel like, you know, I'm not, I wouldn't again say I'm invincible, but I'm to a point where I've reeled myself in a bit and um, I feel like I'm good to go. You know, I don't think it's, gonna happen. I'm more scared being in a car on a highway. There are enough people in the world who are on 
I've almost been hit by a semi when I'm riding my road bike, you know, on the highway, or I feel like my time, unfortunately, I just, I'm not scared of death. I just don't want to die in a car, you know, bleeding out with the jaws of life gone and just because some drunk driver hit me or somebody was texting or, you know, I mean, if I die doing what I love doing, then then so be it. You know, it's it's the journey I'm on and there's urgency to the stories that I'm telling and, and death, the fear of death doesn't factor into my into my world. But at the same time, I know that I need to stay alive if I'm going to keep telling these stories. I want to run through a few of your notable shoots, yeah. uh, the first one being uh, the polar bear through the window photograph. How did that happen? Oh, I was um, working in Svalbard, Norway, and you know, through to climate change, we had for had to put the story on hold for a few years. Um, you know, historically, there's ice surrounding Svalbard, and for the few years, just due to lack of loss of ice and warming temperatures, there was no ice, and so we kept putting it on hold. And finally, I found a guide I could work with. Uh, Carl Eric Wilhelmsen and we agreed to go out on our snowmobiles and um, try and document polar bears but we were having a hard time finding them because there was no sea ice there was just this little strip along land and we were sitting out a blizzard in this little cabin and we played a lot of Yahtzee and we were just hanging out and uh, you know waiting for the the weather to improve and all of a sudden I looked up and there's this polar bear staring at me through the window but it was an image I wanted to make it was one I was excited it was one I had sketched out I mean these bears when they're hungry they get into trouble they come into contact with man they get killed they get shot they don't come off the quota I wanted to show in one image and tell a story that these animals are coming into contact with humans and I so all of a sudden here's this moment the bears looking at me through the window but the windows kind of dirty it's iced up so I opened up the window and all of a sudden I'm sitting here two feet away from this female polar bear and she's beautiful and she's looking at me and I, I but I realized I couldn't, her face was too much in shadow, it was so bright behind her and the, there wasn't enough light coming out of this dark dingy cabin and I, all I had to put light on her face was I grabbed my laptop computer which luckily had a little bit of battery left and had put it onto a white screen and I was holding it up about you know a foot from her face with a wide angle lens and I kept trying to fill in the shadows and as she's just looking at me through this open window also hoping that she's not going to come into the cabin because obviously she's hungry and she's smelling the smells of our food and she didn't she was great got a picture of her and she just went on went on her way and you know generally I, I've seen 3,000 polar bears I've seen 2,000 grizzly bears and a thousand black bears and you know I've never once had this moment where I was this bear was out to eat me or kill me I mean they're these completely misunderstood top predators that are just out, out there trying to scratch out a living and I'm always trying to give them that fair representation. What did you know about leopard seals going into your famous shoot and what ended up happening? You know I I didn't know much about them. I, I had put in to do a story uh, for National Geographic on leopard seals and it took a long time to get the, for things to come together for me to find a boat that I could go to Antarctica with and I you know, consulted this, this gentleman by the name of Jordan Elme from Sweden. He had met the leopard seal. He said it, it can be extremely intimidating. And, and um, I said, I want to do a story and just dispel the myth of this misunderstood predator in Antarctica. If we're going to get people to care about climate change and habitat. And, and right when Geographic approved the story, tragically in 2004, um, a scientist was killed by a leopard seal, taken down and drowned. And, and um, and the world was like, okay, see, they are these vicious animals. And I was like, I got to do this. I got to dispel this myth. And we arrived in Antarctica. It was a, a five-day crossing in the roughest seas in the world. Actually, a seven-day crossing. How was that? It was beautiful. Uh, beautiful. It was brutal. It was vomiting. 
almost nonstop for the first three days to the point that I thought I might not make it. That my diaphragm was was I was was in contraction just from from vomiting so much nonstop with no food or water. I mean, just it's so rough being in, in 20 foot seas in the bow of a little sailboat going up and down and getting smacked in 50 knots of wind. And you know, it was dangerous to get out of bed. I was always getting thrown out of bed into the wall. You crawl, crawl back into bed, just kept puking into my pillow. When you say you thought you might not make it, meaning what, that you just, yeah, just gonna suffocate. I mean, I don't know, I didn't, I'm not a doctor. I don't know much about it, but when you are, when you're vomiting, it goes like, <laughs> You know, and you're just dry heaving like that for hour after hour. It is so brutal uh, that it's, it becomes scary. You feel like you're suffocating and, and just trying to deal with that. But luckily, after three days, the storm subsided. Um, and I was able to get some food in and, 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 and eat some apples and some water. And, uh, we get there after a week at sea, and we put the Zodiac in the water, and we go around the corner. And I've never seen a leopard seal before. But this huge female came up to the boat. Her head's bigger than a grizzly bear's, and she's 12 feet long, and we're in a 12-foot zodiac, and she's as big or bigger than our boat. And she goes off and grabs a penguin, and she comes up underneath the hull of the boat, and we're just sitting there, and she starts to ram this penguin against the hull of the boat, and she's interacting with us. So he and I sit down, and we brace ourselves, because we don't want to fall in the water. Um, and I'm looking at this huge seal, and then she goes 15 feet away from the boat. She grabs it and they do this, this death shake. She shakes it by the head so fast that you can hardly see there's water flying everywhere, this explosion, all of a sudden there's chunks of meat and she shakes it so hard she uses centrifugal force to turn the penguin inside out. And so now the skin's off the meat and now there's just blood and guts in the water and she's eating this penguin and that's when Yodan said to me, this is a good seal, it's time for you to get in the water, yeah? And I'm like, forget that, except I said, that. Everything in my body is like, do not do this. And so he and I started to fight. He's like, listen, you told me not enough budget, not enough time, and you had to tell this story in your career at National Graphic. Bup, 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 I'll talk. Now you shut up and you get in the water. I've given you your seal. Here is your seal. And I'm like, are you kidding me? I said, and so I put on my dry suit. I, you ever almost been that, that convinced you? Yeah. Yeah. I was like, he's right. You know, I've made these promises and they accepted my proposal and I'm here to get in the water with friggin' leopard seals. Let's get on with the show, buddy. And, um, put my snorkel in my mouth and I slipped over the edge of the boat and I mean objects appear 30% larger underwater than they do above water. So forever how big she looked, she was massive. And uh, she dropped her penguin, she came racing over to me, it was just this massive head and she starts doing these lunges at me, these threat displays and Yodan had, had prepped me and said that these seals can do that. They'll do these cobra-like strikes at you. But he had also <laughs> said that she was going to do this and she would probably relax and so I'm putting my strobes on half power. I'm thinking F8, 1 60th of a second, you know, depth of field, get the shot, get your focus right. This is happening. As I'm staring into the mouth of the seal where her canines are here and here, and I'm staring in her mouth as she's doing this, and I just start shooting, shooting, shooting. And she does these displays, and then she relaxes, and she disappears, and I'm thinking the encounter must be over. I don't know what's going on next. She comes back with another penguin and she holds it by its feet and the penguin's trying to get away from her and this fresh caught penguin and she lines it up with me and she lets it go and the penguin swims over my shoulder and she goes off and grabs it and she comes back and does it again and again and again. I'm like, is she trying to offer me a penguin now? Like, this is just too much. Like, my emotions going through my body at this time are just like, are you kidding me? And um, I keep photographing, she does it again and again and then she realizes that I think she realizes at this point that I can't catch a live swimming penguin, so she grabs another penguin and she gets it tired, she gets it worn out. 
and she tries to offer me that penguin. And then ultimately she started to bring me dead penguins. At one point I had five dead penguins floating around my head with her just sitting there. And this, this I'm telling you the stories if it all happened in a minute. It happened over four days. I mean, every time I got in the water, she was there to greet us, greet me with a penguin and was determined to get me to eat a penguin. At once she rammed my dome underwater incredibly hard. I think that there was so much blood in the water and the penguins and she's eating it and I'm this far from all of a sudden my dome is touching her lips. Um, in the water, and she rams the camera, um, thinking maybe it was another leopard seal. Another time, she flung a penguin through the air, and I'm in the water, like from me to you, like this, and you're the leopard seal. She flings the penguin, which weighs 10 pounds, drills me into the side of the head, and I felt myself almost getting knocked out. I was like, bang! And I feel myself sort of closing down, and I'm like, and you just see her change her body language. She starts to watch me like this as you become weak, and I'm like, you hang on to this, buddy, and I'm like, brought myself like, pretended I was good until I was good, kept shooting, just all these inner things. And then she'd come up to me and she'd blow bubbles in my face, like frustrated that I couldn't accept the penguin. And this, all this craziness happened. And, um, and then on the fourth day, um, I'm thinking she's really sick of me now because I've shown my complete ineptness. And then she looks at me and she rolls over on her back and she does this guttural deep jackhammer sound. It vibrates through my whole body. I didn't even know they vocalized like this. And I'm like, okay, now I'm gonna get it. Now she's upset and she looked at me and as she did that, she rushed towards me and I'm like, I'm about to get hit. And she rushed right by me and as she did that, I looked and there was another big leopard seal had snuck up behind me. And that whole threat display was for this other big leopard seal who happened to have a penguin in its mouth. And I was just like, are you kidding me? It's like, it, it's, it's the most incredible story. I think it, it's the most incredible thing that will ever happen to me in my career. To meet this vicious predator, to have it nurture me, take care of me, try and feed me, trying to figure me out in its world, and, and to come back with a set of pictures to this day that I'll never duplicate. Tell about accompanying narwhal hunters and how you were conflicted with telling that story. That's the hardest thing I've ever had to do in my life. That's the hardest story I've ever had to do. The, the Inuit are my, in many ways, my protectors, my friends, my people who I grew up with, who I look up to deeply. And, and I'm out on the sea ice with them, living with the Inuit for, for many years. And, um, and I'm witnessing this hunt over the years, I'm witnessing this hunt that is so out of control where it went from this meat survival eat for the community to basically a modern day ivory trade and where you have 14 year old kids with high powered rifles smoking every whale that goes by hoping that they're going to get it. And when you start to look at the science that there's a five to one sink ratio that five whales are being shot and sunk and lost for each one that they get. Aerial studies have been done that show 80% of them have at least one bullet hole wound. And when I have my own aerial pictures of narwhals with seven bullet holes in them, when I'm watching uh, a grumpy hunter blow the head off a baby narwhal because he's in a bad mood and watch it sink, when I watched another hunter out there who um, got a female and she's pregnant and she's floating there and he doesn't want it to come off the quota, he wants the male to get the tusk, he punctures her lungs and sinks her under the ice. You know, but at the same time, these people are not bad people, they're not evil people, they're just people trying to scratch out a living, you know, the, the, the government, the way it's all, it's, you know, it's just this dysfunctional system. Um, and they're trying to make money, you know, and here's a way to make money. If they can get a thousand bucks for a narwhal tusk, they're gonna go after it. But 
killing a narwhal is, is very, very difficult. Only the really exceptional hunters can do it on a regular basis without a lot of waste. It's all these young people coming up. And I talked to the Inuit about it. I did interviews. I went and talked to Fisheries and Oceans Canada about it. And they said, no, it's, it's fine. It's a well-managed hunt. And all things considered, it's just fine. Nobody wanted to touch it. And so after witnessing this for eight years, watching, you know, being in the water with, with uh, baby narwhals while the mum's bleeding out to death that's you know way offshore watching her die a slow death and a friend of mine watched this female who was killed and all the males came together and lifted her to the surface on her tusks. It's just like you know at some point I, I went to my editor at National Geographic I told him the whole thing he said well do you want to do the story now or do you want to do it when they're all gone? It's, it's your choice and I'm like Shit, you know I'm, I'm gonna go do this and and I, it was just such a sickening feeling I would sort of cry myself to sleep every night in my tent witnessing the slaughter of the animals that I loved and, and also the people that I loved. And even halfway through the story, the Inuit in Arctic Bay started to figure out what I was up to, you know, because the questioning I was asking. And without even asking me, they called the, um, my community where I grew up in Lake Harbor with the Inuit and they said, Paul Nicklin, we think he's doing a, an expose on our hunting culture. And like, I was the only one who had access to this. No other film crew could go in and witness this. And because I spoke a bit of the language and, you know, I've been with them friends for so many years. And the people I grew up with said, no, Paul would never do anything bad for the Inuit. He would never say anything bad. The Inuit, are, you're, you're either with Greenpeace or you love them. And in their case, like, he's, he loves us. So therefore, he could never do anything bad for us. And so to have their trust and to use that. In, in many ways to, in a, through their eyes, fry them, you know, to burn them with this, this coverage. But in the end, I'm like, the Inuit have a voice, politicians have a voice, you know, everybody has a voice, these narwhals do not have a voice, and I'm watching them get slaughtered. It's like seeing thousands of elephants left dead, you know, on the plains, you know, with just their tusks taken. Um, and I just, in the end, I did it. I went ahead and did it, and it was just the worst, worst experience of my life to the point that I was... I was just absolutely, you know, nauseous, sick about it, and I released it, and and we thought there would be a storm over the story, and it was way worse than we ever thought. Like it really, how so? Just upset the communities, just upset the hunters, upset the people. They're still upset. I mean, I still have many friends in the Arctic, and I still have very a lot of my closest friends live in the north, and and we stay in touch. But the uh, there are also a lot of hunters who are still upset. They just betrayed their trust, you know, and. I'd probably do it again, you know. It, it banned the export of ivory from Canada for a couple of years, uh, but now it's in full swing again. It's still back to it. There's still oh. there's, the hunt still continues, you know. So in a community that gets quoted as 150 narwhals, they'll be killing six or seven hundred narwhals uh, just to get their quota, and that much waste and sinking continues. Um, and fisheries and oceans in Canada, to me, is one of the most corrupt organizations in Canada, and they not only. Uh, protect this hunt. It's their mandate to manage this hunt, but they um, they will lie and protect it to the point that I mean they do not want to deal with the cultural fallout of shutting down this hunt. So they they're going to allow it to continue. And not only that, they're going to protect it and, and protect it from the world's eyes. And as journalists, this is what we do. You said you thought you failed that assignment. How so? I failed in that. All I wanted with that assignment was to wake up the Canadian government to manage narwhals better. To, to, of course, you know, it need to hunt. Of course, they need to live off the land. They need to eat meat, you know. But when the Canadian government allows these hunters to shoot these animals and they take the tusk and they take the skin and they leave 
3,000 pounds of meat rotting on the ice and there's a five to one sink ratio and for the government to say it's more like a, a two to one ratio and that's acceptable, I find that such a gross mismanagement of an animal and a population and a species that I don't blame the Inuit. I don't see the Inuit as doing anything wrong. It's like when you allow your kids to go outside every night and get into trouble and you know get into drugs and do things wrong and you never scold them or give them any, you know, and, and, and yet you say you're the parent or you're protecting them, but you're not, then all of a sudden things get a lot worse. So in a sense, I failed because all I did was really upset the Inuit. And the Inuit came out of this looking bad and the government hardly got mentioned. The government can defend themselves, you know, they're very articulate and they're used to being a bunch of politicians and they can, you know, worm their way out of anything, whereas the Inuit just came out and just like with egg on their face in this and, and that was never my intention, you know, my intention was to wake up the government to all of a sudden find a happy solution to this hunt and uh, I thought I found the formula of doing a, an expose undercover thing and I just really hurt a lot of my friends and the hunt continues today so I've, I've failed deeply. Most satisfying moment from your career would be what? The biggest most satisfying moments are when you get an announcement here in Hartley Bay with the First Nations that they've cancelled the gate, Northern Gateway pipeline of running 300 big oil tankers through this habitat every year knowing that their you know, deforestation has been uh, greatly reeled in here, banning death nets off the coast of uh, California, these big drift nets that kill randomly. Those are the victories that, that mean everything to me. The awards, the, the accolades, the, all of it is just, it's just a, a, small, a small affirmation. Or, but the, the big wins are these, these, these victories of protecting habitats and species. How do you find the balance between being a photojournalist and conservationist? It's so funny, I went on this journey of being a scientist to a pretty picture photographer. So science left me feeling empty. So excited to be a pretty picture photographer and just to see my images published in magazines. I started to feel very empty very quickly in doing that. And then from there to become a National Geographic photojournalist, that was really exciting for about 10 years and I'm like, I need to do more. So now I'm fueled by what's the outcome? We need to say this, we need to have a conservation win. That's what fuels me now. You, a while back, pitched your Nat Geo editors about making an emotional plea to your readers. Take me into the room and the conversation that took place around that. All the stories I'd been doing for National Geographic were based on hardcore science. You know, I still had that science background behind me. I was young and, and, and I said, look, can I just try a new formula? Can I write a story for National Geographic? Photographers never, almost, almost never get to write in National Geographic. I said, let me write a story. Let me photograph it. Let me do an emotional plea to the readers. Let people understand that, that the ice in the Arctic is like the soil in a garden, that when, when the ice disappears, that this, this ecosystem will collapse. And as we see sea ice disappearing, obviously science isn't getting done, getting it done. What's gonna happen when we lose ice? And um, I said, can I write it and can I photograph it? And they're like, yeah, it's not what we normally do around here. Photographers photograph and writers write. And I'm like, let me try it. And so they did. And, and we were shocked that it was not only the number one story of the year, but it had the highest readership score of any story over the previous 14 years. And I was just like, that's what first set me off down the path of the importance of breaking down the walls of apathy, creating that emotional connection through storytelling, and not just being this sort of old school, dry, unbiased journalism. You know, it was basically a plea. And, and whether it made a big difference or not, I don't know, but obviously it resonated with people. How did your idea for a nonprofit come about? 
My idea for a nonprofit was very simple in that my partner, Christina Mittemeyer, originally has started an organization called the International League of Conservation Photographers. She took the world's best photographers. She got them working for her for free on the biggest conservation issues facing us today. Um, she had conservation wins. And it just became too big and too much to handle. And um, as we saw everywhere we go in the world, we see problems with our oceans. And we said, you know, taking on the whole planet is massive. There's already thousands of nonprofits doing conservation work. Let's focus on the oceans. And we need to break down the walls of apathy, and that's going to happen through visual storytelling, um, where we work with the top scientists. We base our imagery on science, but you have to shoot those artistic, powerful images to start the conversation. And that's when we began Sea Legacy four years ago. Explain the projects that you're currently taking on through Sea Legacy. Well, with Sea Legacy, we look for where we can make a difference, where we can have impact by bringing in our, our visual storytelling team. Um, so we look for tipping points. We, we base it on science. We talk to the scientists. We see where the biggest issues facing our planet are today. We look where we can drive change. So we look for these tipping points. And then from there, we put together a visual storytelling expedition. So we go on expedition, we gather the assets, and from there we have our campaign team that run with these visuals through social media, through television, through uh, big political pushes. And then from there we, we work towards solutions. And then from there we film our solutions and we create this nice little feedback loop. Uh, and we're actually having victories and wins. And it's, it's a powerful thing when you can, all you have to do is use your camera, put these issues in front of an international court of public opinion, get the world weighing in on it, and politicians listen when you get 220,000 signatures on an issue and, and people start to speak their mind. What are some of the wins you've had? Well, one of the big wins is right here. We're so excited to be back here in Hartley Bay. Uh, we came here in 2010 when the Northern Gateway Pipeline from Enbridge from the tar sands was being pushed through this territory to Kitimat to this coast were 300 oil tankers, 10 times bigger than the Exxon Valdez. We're gonna come through these very, very rich, nutrient-rich waters uh, year-round with some of the dirtiest oil in the world on board and working with the First Nations, using our, our images, doing uh, a major cover feature for National Geographic magazine on the Spirit Bear, getting another 20 pages about the oil industry and a pipeline through, it was called Pipeline Through Paradise. And then to just see the efforts of Pacific Wild and other the nonprofits, every First Nation between here and Alberta came together to stand in solidarity against this and to eventually, in the courts, through pressure, to have Enbridge shut down the Northern Gateway Pipeline project through this territory. It was just a really beautiful victory. We're taking on uh, whaling, the, the, the whaling of an endangered fin whale species in Iceland. We've taken on the uh, drift net campaign off the coast of uh, California when Californians have no idea that there's these mile-long nets out there killing dolphins and whales and seals and sea lions for uh, swordfish fisheries, which shouldn't be allowed in the first place. So that's another one that we're winning where it's going well. We've uh, banned the uh, oil and seismic exploration in the fjords of Norway, northern fjords of Norway, where the orcas come to feed in the winter on herring. It's just one after another, and we, we've figured out this blueprint. Our team is growing, and um, we're just going to try and mow these down one after another. How has the work you're doing to build Sea Legacy impacted your ability to do for-profit work? It's been a very interesting journey. I, I never thought I would arrive at this point, but where it's become such a selfless pursuit, where I'm uh, for the last five years, I've been pouring my own personal resources into growing Sea Legacy. Christina's been doing that. Uh, we still don't collect a wage, and, and yet we're starting to raise significant funding. And 
at some point when you're turning down paid work, you're turning down assignments with National Geographic, you're turning down lectures and appearance fees because you want to keep growing this conservation movement. At some point, this business model is going to fail <laughs> when you keep spending tons of money on something, trying to grow it, and, and then not, not paying yourself. So it, it's, we're, we're, I'm building a team around myself as well to keep growing my own brand and business and as well as, as growing Sea Legacy, but Sea Legacy is first and foremost for us. How do you think it's impacted you financially? Just spending a lot of money and not making any after a while. Um, you know, but I'm at a, I was at a point you know, three, four years ago where I could have retired and it was at that point that it was, it was scary, like retire, why? I mean, I've got 30 years left in this body to go out and crush it and grind it out and get these visual assets and lead these people, lead these storytellers. I would care less if I woke up half broke tomorrow, just, you know, as long as I have enough to, to survive and, and to keep leading the charge with this, with, with this team of passionate people, it's, it's fine. Money will come. You know, we're finding ways to grow our social media, to using our social, someone just paid me $22,000 to put a little story on my feed. You know, if I can have this machine working behind me while I'm out doing the work that's important to me, then we have found the perfect balance. Someone just made a, an anonymous donation to Sea Legacy for 400,000 US dollars to set Christina and I free. Like, don't worry about making money. Go, go out there and do your work. Get out there on the front lines, lead your team. And it was like, that's, it's a nice, it's a beautiful, beautiful gesture. It's a nice surprise. So money's gonna come, we're not worried about that. What I'm really proud of with Sea Legacy is that we've started something called the, the Tide, which is people are anywhere from $1 to $5,000 a month, people are making these donations. And we're trying to grow that tide where rather than waiting for one corporate sponsor or big generous donations like that, that we can have tens of thousands of people giving $10 a month, um, which will ultimately turn into millions of dollars a year, allowing our team to be out there basically without without money being a factor in the work that we do, just being autonomous, an autonomous hub of content creation for conservation wins. And where do people go if they... Uh, they just go to the website, seelegacy.org, yep. you can just join the tide, and, and by there it's like sort of a Patreon account or where you get to be part of the journey, you get to be behind the scenes and get special access to footage and the work that we're doing. It's been a model that's, that's working, we just need to grow it. How has social media changed the game for you? It's, it's been incredible, you know, I thought it was a joke four years ago when a couple friends, my buddy Sam Kretschmar and uh, Jenny Nichols both came to me and said, hey dude, you need to get on Instagram. I'm like, come on, I'm not gonna, I would not reduce my photography, you know, which I see as fine art and beautiful or for magazines into little wee squares on, A, you don't really ever crop your images like that and why would I do that? And all of a sudden, I put up a couple of posts and I actually baited people from National Geographic to my feed. I got 45,000 new followers one day in three hours. <laughs> and uh, you know, within a year I'd hit a million followers and I was like, whoa. And then when I opened my gallery in New York, um, you know, I said, hey guys, come on down to the gallery and meet me. I'll be here and we can talk about conservation. And, and you know, 3,000 people showed up and there's a lineup around the city block in the rain. We had to hire a, a buddy, a, a guy I know now, Drago from Serbia, to come in as a bouncer to control the crowds. And people were coming in like crying and hugging. And just, I think people are looking for leadership. They're looking for guidance. They're looking for direction. They're looking for hope. And uh, it's, it's been become a very powerful thing for me to realize that there are real passionate, smart, intellectual people at the other side of those Instagram followers. It's not just a number of who has how many followers, it's the engagement that I have with my audience that I love, that I can put up a post and talk about an issue, have 10,000 comments on one post. That's 10,000 comments, and those are people debating, discussing, negotiating. 
I think it's powerful. And forget how many, you know, if you get a million likes on a post, great, but I care about the engagement, and that's to have a really uh, engaged audience is important to me. Who have you been most surprised has reached out to you through social media? I mean, when I wake up and I'm like, my numbers just jumped five or 10,000 followers without me doing anything, and I'm looking, I go over to Leonardo DiCaprio's page, and he's just, you know, I don't know if it's him, but it's his people, I guess, but they share a lot of content on his feed. Or, you know, you know, Kelly Slater's writing me, and like, how do I get involved? And it's just like, really? And Eddie Vedder just invited us to his concert uh, this week because he cares about the environment and wants to, you know, talk about Sea Legacy. And then Bride Adams and I are friends through conservation, you know, so just people I really respect as artists, you realize that they're all people who just care. Um, and, and there's just a lot of people are starting to come to the surface. Your favorite experience you've had with any of these people that you spent time with? I was working in Svalbard, Norway, and my friend Sean Powell and I were just like living in this dirty little tent, and it's like wet, wet, and we're cold, and we've been eating freeze-dried food for two months, and I get a phone call from the National Geographic ship, and they're like, hey, can you come on board tonight? If we move the ship up the coast, we're here with some people, and can you come out and do a talk? I'm like, yeah, sure, I need a shower anyway, and I need this free supply of food, and so we take the Zodiac 150 miles down the coast of Svalbard. We meet up with the ship, I go shower, and I come out, to do a talk, and it's a you know it's a narrow quarters, and we're in the front row is uh, President Carter, uh, Rosalind Carter, Ted Turner, Larry Page, uh, Madeline Albright, and it just sort of each row was was a Chevy Chase. I mean, just went uh, on and on and on in the ship, and I'm just like. I haven't talked to another person except Sean for two months and all of a sudden here I am to deliver the keynote that evening and um, it was powerful. Then the next day to take you know President Carter and Rosalind Carter out in a, in a Zodiac and to show them, show them walrus. You're up there with walrus and they're understanding the importance of sea ice and multi-year ice and with the loss of ice it's going to affect species like walrus. It's just a very powerful time to spend time like that with somebody of influence. How do you reconcile when you're spending time with somebody of influence, you know, and their desire to help out with the fact that they just flew in on their private jet or own, you know, a dozen homes around the world? I mean, I get the same thing as well. And if I listen to every one of my social media followers, I would wear, live in a hemp sack. I would not have a cell phone. I would never have flown in my life. I would not ever have a vehicle. I would live on a, you know, a deserted desert island, but somehow, I would still be as effective in the work that I do in conservation. And just, you just have to, of course, we all have an impact and an imprint on this planet. My impact or where I've made a difference is by not having kids, you know, trying to go vegetarian, uh, working closer and closer to that, you know, just trying to minimize my impact. But sure, I get on an airplane to go do a conservation project. I fly with my excess baggage. And so I don't, you know, if Al Gore is going around the world, um, flying almost daily doing lectures on conservation and, and climate change then you know sure you can always shoot the messenger you can always find a way to poke holes in people but i always try and choose to celebrate the good that they're doing obviously there's a lot that has to be done to combat uh, climate change but why do you think the world pretty much only comes together when there are major catastrophic events i just think it's everybody cares everybody's really busy and you can't afford to care all the time. You gotta run your business, you gotta care about your family, you gotta care, you know, you gotta make money, you gotta survive on this planet. And all of a sudden, when there's a big disaster, it's like, oh, 
wait, the whole world cares about this, boom, I'm gonna throw some money at her or make a donation, I'm gonna get back to my life. You know, it's really hard to wake up every day. And I mean, Al Gore was, was right when he said an inconvenient truth. It is, we know it's there, but it's super inconvenient to say, hey, you know what, I'm gonna switch my vehicle to an electric car. I'm going to, uh, we're not gonna go on holidays this year because I don't wanna take my family and have a massive carbon footprint. I don't want to build that second house. Maybe we're not gonna have our fourth kid. We have to stop eating Atlantic salmon because I hear that's bad. I really warn people that caring is difficult, but once you start down the path of opening yourself up to factoring our planet in your day-to-day -day decisions, it's, it's incredibly rewarding, but it is, it's not easy. How do you view politicians that are climate change deniers? When I did my first stories for National Geographic on climate change, not, no scientist that I would work with would go on record and even say that climate change is real. They didn't feel like they had the, the undeniable data that was in, and now I can go to any one of those scientists, or you can talk to any, you know, true authentic scientists and they'll tell you the same thing you know that it's the biggest problem facing us as a species today so I don't you know, when the deniers are out there of course they're gonna take that stand but they're becoming the minority very quickly and I'm not too worried about them. you said we'd be done if President Trump was elected I, I always find a silver lining in everything and obviously Trump is is terrible for the planet um, but I think the silver lining in Trump is that he has you know, if Hillary Clinton had gotten in or Bernie Sanders had gotten in, the whole world would stay relaxed and say, you know what, the leadership is there. We just go on about our lives and let's not worry about this stuff because the government's got it handled. At some point, the world had to wake up and take the day-to-day -day decisions and hold themselves accountable in the lives that we're leading on, on this earth and the impact we're having on this planet. And I think Trump has done that. He has woken up the planet when he came in and you see the destruction that he is causing by dismantling the EPA, opening up like Bears Ears National Monument, the destruction that he's doing, the world has woken up. He started a revolution. I think by the time he's done with his damage, I think the good that's gonna come out of people waking up is a much better win. What are your thoughts on President Trump's environmental policies? It's obviously a disaster. I mean, he's blowing up everything that he can. I mean, where do you want to begin? From the, the disregard of First Nations and, you know, Standing Rock and pushing pipelines through First Nations land to, uh, you know, just the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge to climate change to drilling in the Arctic to, you know, I think one of the bigger ones for me is drilling in the Arctic. When Obama actually the White House Oval Office called me one morning and said, hey, Obama wants to make an announcement to the world about uh, protecting the North Slope and the Beaufort Sea and banning drilling in the Arctic and he wants you to release the announcement with him. I almost cried, you know, it was such a, uh, a compliment from him to, to even reach out. Um, and we released this press release together and to see that all blowing up now because of Trump. I mean, you saw what the BP oil disaster did. Imagine something in the Arctic under the ice where you couldn't react to it. Uh, even as efficiently as you did with BP, which was a complete disaster. Um, I, I think that one terrifies me. I just know how rich that habitat is when you've got 50,000 narwhals and beluga whale population and bowhead whales and polar bears and all these species. Uh, and you talk about people not meeting their, you know, their, their Paris Agreement, hitting their climate change targets, uh, their emission targets. It's just, uh, it's, it's terrifying. The not crazy thing for me is that we're just another species on this planet. If, you know, if all this is crumbling around us, ultimately we will crumble too. And, and the fact that we can't wake up to that is just mind-boggling to me. How would you best explain the importance of the oceans? Without the oceans, we die tomorrow. I mean, the oceans are uh, the lungs of the planet. Every second breath you take comes from the sea. The ocean is the world's biggest grocery store. That, that bitch is just, it's amazing how the ocean, when you get out of its way, how quickly it recovers. It is this, 
over four billion years of evolution to arrive at this perfect ecosystem of, of growing life. But the, the amount of pressure that we have put on the oceans in the last two, three hundred years is just the fact that it's even existing. I mean, Christina, my partner, was just in Ghana here last week filming for Sea Legacy and they're pulling more plastic out of the ocean in their nets than they are fish. I mean, we've pushed the ocean beyond its breaking point in most places and we will see the ocean collapse. We are already seeing the ocean show signs of collapsing. When I did the story for National Geographic uh, in this area on the blob, it's where the water has worn over six degrees over a two-year period, well, I photographed 80 sea otters breathing their last breath that are dying from paralytic shellfish poisoning on the coast of Alaska. We're finding dead sea lions, thousands of dead birds and fish, and even even fin whales and humpbacks whales that are dying from uh, from uh, toxic algae. So. Uh, we are seeing the effects. The, the ocean is one of these things that when it folds, it's going to fold quickly and it's going to have immediate impacts on us. And explain the pressure we're putting on the ocean currently. We are, when you think that almost all the big fish have been removed from the ocean, you know, when, when you have wiped out tuna populations and, and this food that we've lived off of, but now there's so many people demanding food from the oceans. When you look at this coast right here where we're taking Atlantic salmon fish farms uh, again, authorized by Fisheries and Oceans Canada, and we're putting them on this coastline, a fish that should not be in these waters. And you get Picene reovirus, which is a, a, blood, a blood virus, which is killing the wild salmon. And as you saw yesterday, standing on the shores of these rivers, the salmon are gone. So you think of when the salmon have collapsed, the herring have collapsed, the water temperatures are warming, and seaweed populations are collapsing. Seaweed the big kelp forests are underwater rainforests that are the safety and the sanctuary for all these small fish that are part of this ecosystem. They've all disappeared. We're seeing oca stars, which are the beautiful starfish that are basically melting. You see them dying on the rocks because the water's warm. And the amount of pollutions and toxins and plastic that we're pushing in the ocean, it's just we're hitting at it from every, every level, every angle. How much of an inability is there to stop the loss of sea ice? We're going to lose a lot more sea ice before we ever say it. The only way we can save sea ice is to reduce carbon emissions. That's it. Whether it's through the cattle industry, it's through fossil fuels, that's where we have to address it. There's not going to be any magic cure. People talk about putting a garden hose in the sky and creating a vapor barrier or a water, you know, a, a cloud barrier between the sun and earth. I mean, that's, that's an asinine solution. We're talking about moving to Mars. You know, let's, let's reduce our carbon footprint on this planet and let's save ice and save these ecosystems and ultimately save ourselves. It's pretty simple math. Early 2000s, you go through the Northwest Passage on an icebreaker. Uh, how much different is it today versus then? You know, when I went through, we were smashing ice all the time. We had a, Canada's largest icebreaker that was smashing ice just to get through it. I could hardly sleep. You know, you're at the water level. It sounds like someone's beating on your room with a sledgehammer. And this is ice that lives for many years, ice that's up to 10 feet thick. Well, that ice is all but gone. Uh, you know, my friend who I'm working with here, Scott Barnes, he took a little rubber boat through the Northwest Passage. And I said, did you hit any ice? Oh, no, we never saw ice. So little sailboats are going through. This year they brought... Uh, a cruise ship through the Northwest Passage with 2,000 guests on it, you know, on a ship that can't touch ice or go near ice. It's that open now. And all of a sudden, rather than a major alarm bells going off, countries are all talking about the possibilities for industry, for ship traffic, for, you know, how do we take this to our advantage? What can we drill? Where can we drill for oil in this new uh, open frontier? And we, we have the very, very much the wrong reaction to the current state of ice in the Arctic. Explain what happens as we continue to lose sea ice. As we lose ice, um, you're losing 
the foundation of an ecosystem. It's very much like losing soil in the garden. You know, like you think without soil, a garden can't grow. But as you lose ice, um, you're losing the foundation of that ecosystem. How has your ability to photograph polar bears changed as sea ice reduces? There's still some out there and there's still bears out there, but we are finding skinnier and skinnier and bears out there, you know, and it's, it's uh, and I think that's the famous bear that we filmed recently, the dying polar bear. Um, we can't prove that that's because of climate change. We can't prove that that's because of a lack of ice, but uh, I have found more dead bears that have starved to death. And again, I don't just go look for my own data set of my own photographs and, you know, I go talk to the scientists. When I talk to the scientists in Alaska and they're saying, yeah, we're finding dead bears that are floating out in the open ocean. When we're finding bears that are having to swim over 400 miles to get from ice to land, uh, that's not how they've evolved. You know, they have not evolved. So what's happening with ice is that it's, it's melting earlier every spring and it's freezing later every fall. Bears, if they have enough fat, are designed to go for fairly long periods of a few months without eating. But imagine now that ice that melts in an area that used to historically have ice year-round is now melting in June and July and disappearing and it's not freezing till October. That bear now has to survive for six months without ice. Bears are not omnivores. They can't live on vegetation and seaweed. They must eat meat. They eat seals. So without ice, bears need ice in order as a platform to hunt seals. So it's uh, it's very, it's very basic math and it's just trying to keep reminding, using the power of photography to keep reminding people of this simple math. How did you find the emaciated bear and describe what you saw? I was on an expedition, a, a very generous supporter of Sea Legacy invited us to come up on his, his, his boat and show him around the Arctic. They had just announced that they were going to create a marine protected area in Lancaster Sound. I thought, well, let's at least go celebrate that and talk about the importance of creating marine protected areas. Celebrate Trudeau's target of creating 10% of marine protected areas in Canada by 2020. Seemed like a step in the right direction. Uh, but near the end of the expedition, um, we come around the corner and we see looked looked like basically snow on top of a rock. And then as it moved a little bit, I could see that it was just this emaciated polar bear draped over a rock. And I called in the Sea Legacy team, so they came up to the north. We brought all our cinematic equipment and all our gear and we um, you know all the only thing we could do at this moment of, of seeing this bear was was film it and so we got in land on land a long distance away and we waited for for hours and uh, waiting to see if the bear was you know dead or gonna die or um, we didn't know what it was gonna do but it just eventually slowly woke up and labored to its feet and dragged itself across the tundra it looked like the walking dead and we were hiding in an old uh, Inuit settlement and uh, like a little outpost camp and, and so we wouldn't be in view of the bear couldn't see us. We didn't want to affect its behavior and it dragged itself towards a garbage can and was eating an old foam burnt snowmobile seat or a motorcycle seat and just salivating and you could see that he was uh, not long for this world, hours, maybe days and then he uh, ate, didn't get any food there and he just slowly walked down to the ocean and got into the ocean and swam off around an island and then you know it's uh, yeah, it's just, we were just, the whole team just stood there crying, you know, just everyone's crying openly. And, and we're just filming this moment of watching this big, dominant male bear drag himself like that. Just, and, you know, when, for me, what was important about that is when scientists say that um, 
30% of the population of polar bears is going to disappear by the year 2050, and they're going to disappear as a species. They'll become extinct in the next 100, 100 years plus. Um, I want people to know that's just not science. That's just not data points falling off, off a piece of paper. This is what it looks like. That's all I was trying to say with that video is this is what a starving polar bear looks like. It, they're dying. Ultimately, they're going to disappear because of the lives and the impact that we've had on this planet. Are you okay with that? And um, obviously it brought out the deniers and the haters and the, all the pushback, but um, there was more good and positive that came out of it than the negativity. And through the metrics that we did, we got over two billion views apparently, two billion impressions on that video. And that's powerful. It was the number one climate change story in the year in 2017. It was the most viral video in the history of National Geographic. Um, Christina's picture was one of Time Magazine's top 10 images of the year. Uh, so, and if we did get two billion, if it's not two billion, it's a billion or 700 million, who cares? It's, it's like, it, it reached a good chunk of the planet and that is the power of a camera. How would you explain what disposable plastic is doing? For 15 years or 20 years, photographers have been photographing albatross that they go get so much plastic from the sea, they feed their chicks that all their chicks are dying because their bellies are so full of plastic they can't retain any other food. And so you see all these carcasses rotting on land and all that's there is a belly full of plastic. You know, whales are dying with plastic in their bellies. Um, most turtles nowadays that are dead or that they find sick in the ocean are full of plastic because they're eating plastic bags that they think they're turtles. And now they're finding there's so many microplastic and microfibers in, in the ocean that are these plastic beads that are in our drinking water now. And it's like, if we always keep continuing to wake up too late, then ultimately it's gonna catch up to us and it is catching up to us. And we're like, we're, we're shocked that so many people are dying of cancer, like as if it's some big surprise. But when you see the amount of toxins that we put in our body, when an orca, a killer whale here, dies, it becomes a toxic waste site. It's so full of PCBs. There's just so many pollutants and contaminants in the ocean. What recommendations would you have for people in terms of ways to make easy changes to their lifestyle? Recommendations changes, are people try and become vegetarian or get damn close to it. Stop eating so much red meat. Stop eating Atlantic salmon. Stop using plastic. Stop accepting plastic at any, you know, uh, Starbucks or any uh, any coffee shop, um, stop using plastic bags. I, mean, I was just in Rwanda and it's, 40, it's a $40,000 fine flying into that country if you get caught with any plastic in your luggage, any plastic bag. It's the cleanest country I've ever been to in my life. You walk those streets, it looks like it was just, you know, just air polished that day. I mean, it's just because they banned plastic. Um, you know, just, just figure out where you have the bandwidth to make change whether it's in your cafeteria at work or your cafeteria at school for your kids. We need to factor in the amount of our carbon footprint on this planet from flying to driving and what we drive to uh, the way we heat our homes and to just, you know, whether you're gonna have that, that third or fourth kid, you know, if you're like really on the fence about it, if you factor in the planet, you're not gonna have that third or fourth kid. That's probably the, the, you know, the biggest sacrifice you can make. I and mean, we just have to start factoring the earth in when you make those decisions. Cool. Good. Thank you very much. Appreciate Thank it. Thank you, sir. Thanks for listening to my interview with Paul Nicklin. To see much more of our time with him on the British Columbia coast, including close encounters with spirit bearers and humpback whales, visit youtube.com slash Graham Bensinger. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Graham Bensinger, and you can visit GrahamBensinger.com for TV times in your area. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a rating and review on iTunes or wherever else you listen.
This has been the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast.